Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday, the 13th of September, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The cervical check screening programme was doomed to fail. This is according to Dr Gabriel Scali, who published his long-awaited review yesterday. I've said this is a whole systems failure. Right from the removal of the board of HSE so that there was no external governance of HSE, all the way down to the way in which three of the women were disclosed to in the same room as they were diagnosed in. And for one of those women, it was the same room that her mother died in. Now, this is not acceptable. And my 50 uh, uh, recommendations are designed to change this system And I've also made a recommendation about how uh, that should be uh, dealt with in terms of regular review and should be changed now. And I would like to see... uh, My recommendation is that the country gets on and implements these 50 recommendations. In the press conference yesterday, Dr Scully highlighted how the women were angry at not being told that they had been given an incorrect diagnosis when that information was known to their doctors. The women, he said, were just as angry when they were eventually told because, he said, of the way this information was given to them. And I want to just pause here and quote some of the things that were said to me and you will find through my report quotes from the women that illustrate perfectly the problem and many aspects of it. Referring to one of these open disclosure meetings, a woman said, when I tried to question my oncologist further on what this meant and if I had cancer three and a half years prior to diagnosis, he shut down, refused to answer the simplest of questions and ushered me out of the door with no support and many questions. Women frequently asked their clinicians that they saw in these open disclosure meetings why they hadn't been told. Some of the answers they were given. He said he didn't know the protocol. He said it got lost in the file. He said it was caveated not to disclose. Told more or less to file it. He sat back in his chair, couldn't give two hoots was his attitude. Asked by a woman... 
Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell my clinicians? Answer, what difference does it make? Asked again, but how will I be informed from now on? Answer, watch the news. He said he had seen I had had the hysterectomy and decided I didn't need to know. He basically lied to me. I don't believe a word that they are saying. He couldn't look me in the eye. I could go on, but these quotes, and I quote them, as I say, the words of the women are speaking the truth. It's apparent that there are serious gaps in the governance structures of screening services. In the specific case of cervical check, there was a demonstrable deficit of clear governance and reporting lines between it, the National Screening Service, and the higher management structures of HSE. We'll hear more from Dr Scully later in the programme, but let's hear now from Stephen McMahon, who's a spokesperson for the Irish Patients Association. Stephen, good morning to you, and thanks indeed for joining us. Uh, This is a very comprehensive report, there's much to digest, and there's much to conclude after people have absorbed the information given by Dr Scully into the failings of uh, the cervical check programme. But one of uh, the things that we can say at this stage is that to some degree... History has repeated itself where doctors had this godlike image of themselves and believed that information was only to be given to those uh, who it was relevant to. And quite often that wasn't the patient. Indeed. I mean, when you hear those quotes from Dr. Scally, you can't but get emotional because you can visualize those women in a terrible place at a terrible time when they were, you know, when they were trying to find out information about what had happened to them and to see this sort of cold response of in part their indifference is just you know one is just really left speechless um i just want to say that you know dr scally must be congratulated uh for the work that he has done uh he has i think restored trust in the fact that we can do better in our healthcare system um, it is tragic that this reform, that the sets of reforms that he has uh, suggested is really, how would I say, because of, you know, uh, how would I say, preventable funerals and, and, and injury to patients. And, you know, I think that he has delivered on um, he has delivered on the commitments he made, certainly to ourselves and uh, other groups that met him uh, prior to during his deliberative process. And it really is an example, I think, for both the HSE and the Department of Health and any other agency that's involved in healthcare, showing them how to put the patient at the centre and how their voices uh, should be heard because they have important messages to convey. We have to start looking at patients as human beings uh, and that they deserve that basic uh, right to dignity. And how do you train people to think, uh, especially when it's very well-educated people whose lives we put in their hands? Uh, when you hear the Minister talking about all of uh, the legislation in the world uh, and also then the need for a change of culture, it does ask some very serious questions that are possibly not as easy to answer because we've been hearing uh, about 
about a misogynistic mindset, malignant paternalism, unsatisfactory and inappropriate and damaging and hurtful and offensive attitude from the doctors to the patients. Yes, indeed. And I think that that is something that will have to be addressed through um, a number of different channels. One, obviously, would be in the preparation and education of our doctors, uh, continuing education, not just when they're in in university, but when they're out in their training with their consultants and and, and training up in their specialty. Equally so, I mean, the um, medical council, say, guidelines for open disclosure, uh, Dr. Scally um, took exception to that insofar as that he's saying that it was really... How would I say written with the with the clinician in mind, as opposed to actually having the patient at the centre of why you're disclosing? And you know, he he certainly come out very strongly in support of statutory open disclosure. And um, you know, so in other words, that patients, if something goes wrong, they will be told because that's the law, not because I'm undertaking to to adhere to a voluntary code that I may or may not uh, uh, dip in and dip out as to whether I will or won't tell somebody. Uh, the facts of what had ha- actually happened to them. Um, th- just one other point I'd just like to make is that while we're looking at doctors here, you know, I think the system and certain um, functions within uh, the Department of Health and indeed the uh, the HSE also have further uh, questions to answer insofar as that, you know, he, he criticised very strongly the, the, the risk management process. Um, he accepted that it was, you know, due to the fact that in 2013 the board of the HSE was dissolved. Mm. In other words, you had four or five um, independent, highly expert people that were there with the interest of the patient. And what happened after that was that um, the department or the minister of the day then created a new uh, structure which was made up of about 50% of senior people from the Department of Health and 50% from senior members of the HSE. And there's a direct conflict of interest there, putting policymakers and funders into Mm. a board that are really there to look after the interests of patients. The the abolishment of the board, though, was uh, a populist political decision made by James Riley, who had promised in... uh, an election campaign to abolish the HSE. Well, I would like to hear, you know, looking back, because we have to learn lessons. It's not Mm. just enough to say we had, you know, a system that was doomed to failure. Mm. We've got to look in behind why that became doomed to failure. And one question, certainly the Irish Patients Association would like answered is, you know, what briefing did uh, Minister Riley at the time get? What risk assessment was done about removing the most important area of an organisation in any other government agency, which is its board, and replacing it with a sort of a, you know, a Mm. a, a 50-50 board that didn't really have the sort of governance structure or wouldn't have the the, the lack of conflict of interest that was there at the time. And these are the kind of Mm. things at the end of the day, the culture of the organisation is led by its board and and, and all the rest of it. And from what I've heard of the response, Stephen, it's one of what I thought was the most interesting parts of what Dr. Scally is saying that hasn't received an awful lot of attention because he didn't uh, have uh, the terms to find anybody accountable or to name names or anything like that. But it, it does seem that there is blame apportioned to the Minister of the Day, namely James Riley, and the Government of the Day, Fine Gael, because they uh, irresponsibly abolished the board of the HSC without putting something in place to give a system of oversight. 
Well, I, I think that, you know, and this is why I'm saying I'm trying to be fair to the former Minister for Health, um, James Riley, insofar as that it'd be interesting to see what briefing he had got from his officials as to what the risks were about abolishing the board at the time. And, you know, we're almost in a similar situation now where uh, the HSC or the Minister uh, is out um, looking for a new chair of a future board of the HSC. Mm. But we need to be sure that in the interim, that we have the governance structures there that will oversee uh, the, the the risk um, management profile, or sorry, the risk management committee. Um, that was something else that that didn't really sort of like one of the points that Dr. Scally made yesterday was that um, that the that there was under the old board you had a very robust risk management uh, committee which was you know looking at the risks to the organisation and to the patients as to you know what happens if, and um, you know that sort of sort of filtered away as the different governance structures came in. And really, you know, in the area of the screening side of things, um, uh, was less effective. And, you know, we really have to ensure that all of these 50 recommendations that Dr. Scally has done are implemented and are delivered. And we still at the same time need to understand what happened with the governance and management within the different agencies to ensure that, you know, patients were kept safe as they could be. Okay, and I'm sure uh, you'd have welcomed uh, Dr. Scully's recommendation uh, to have two patient representatives on a re-established HSE board. Without a doubt. I mean, you know, one of the things that comes through, it isn't just the, the HSE board, but like he's calling for involvement of patient advocates and patients' voices and even, you know, patients themselves, because they're, you know, if we look at what Dr. Scully quoted, those emotive quotes, they came from the voices of patients, not, how would I say, patient advocates or whatever else. This was their voices saying, and that's how powerful they can. Their voices have actually changed the way our healthcare system will, 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 will be run into the future. And again, we have to acknowledge the fantastic work that had Vicky Phelan not resisted the, 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 the demand for confidentiality, we would not be in this situation today and we would not know about how doomed the system was at the time uh, to look after uh, p- people, women who's, who put trust in the system. And one last thing I would like to say is that, you know, Dr. Scally again underpinned the fact that the, tre- the, 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 re- the labs that are conducting all of these smears at the moment are all working at top quality mm. and so on. And people shouldn't put off having these smears done. I would encourage them, you know, women to go and have your smears if you're called uh, to ensure that, you know, you are protected and your family is protected as best you can do. And that is most important and that should not be lost sight of. Uh, Stephen, uh, have you come to a conclusion on whether there should be a commission of investigation established at this stage? We're still starting discussing that to see, well, what is it that, you know, what what other areas do need um, further uh, light on? And certainly uh, the issue of accountability has to be addressed. I mean, at the um, Public Accounts Committee, I think it was uh, Mark McSharry had asked the DG, the Director General of the HSE, uh, about, um, you know, looking into the staff, and he undertook to do a conduct investigation. Um, That was last May, so it'll be interesting to see what progress has been made on that since 
uh, since that uh, commitment back in May. And, you know, uh, it may be at the end of the day that the um, inquiry uh, is is the only way to do that. Um, Dr. Scally said yesterday that he encountered no opposition or people were not holding back information. Mm. Uh, and, and that was something to be, uh, to be uh, congratulated, uh, you know, for the people that did participate. Mm. And he didn't find that. evidence of a, a cover-up. Uh, exactly, so, uh, and that's uh, very important. But uh, I if think he's really, correct in that, there's you know, possibly uh, no case for a commission of investigation. Well, the thing is, you see, just because it wasn't corruption or a cover-up or any of these things, which is, which is very admirable, at the end of the day, we had a very dysfunctional system mm. that was doomed to failure. And it has cost people, and some, some people, their lives, you know, and, and, and impeded their you know, their, 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 their spaciousness of health, if I can use that mm. word. And yeah. I think that it's incumbent to ensure that, you know, that everything that can be um, uh, learned from this uh, tragedy can be done. And if we need to do, if we need to have a statutory inquiry, then so be it. Mm. And one, fun, one important point, because people are saying, well, if we have an inquiry, it's going to defer, you know, the reforms that are necessary. I don't buy that because the uh, Chief Justice, President of the High Court last week, in squashing an appeal by the minister to have uh, HICWA do an inquiry into um, the National Maternity Ward, uh, the, 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 the judge more or less said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, and I'm sure somebody will correct mm. me if I'm wrong, that um, you know, when it's a matter of patient safety, you know, you get about sorting that out now. You don't wait for another report or another inquiry or another mm. statutory, whatever else. You get on with, say, dealing with these 50 recommendations, as an example. And if we need to find out other answers that you mm. do need the, the weight of a statutory inquiry, well, then you do that. But it doesn't uh, and time will tell if the 50 recommendations are implemented. If they are, that will be the roadmap to overhauling the system. But what about the past and accountability? Because uh, Dr. Scully was talking yesterday about apologies and he said he wasn't talking about a letter coming from the HSE's head office from some chief of staff saying look we're very sorry for what happened. He was talking about the doctors uh, who met with the women uh, and the women found to be offensive uh, and felt treated them uh, with a a lack of decency to go face to face with those people and apologise directly. I mean we'll be hearing later on in the programme the account of a grieving family hearing from a consultant and that nuns don't get cervical cancer. The same doctor talking to that family about their deceased loved one's smoking habit. I mean, that would seem very cruel to most people. Uh, but is that something that warrants just an apology or is it a sanctionable offence? Well, I, it's very hard to, you know, uh, to go down the route of, of, of a sanction. But if that is the only way, well, then that is obviously through the medical council. And, you know, they would be very restricted in the way that they would um, look at that. I think for the interests of all parties, you know, for the, the interest of, of particularly the women and the families, but also the, 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 the consultants to actually have that personal encounter to simply say I'm sorry uh, because people you can read somebody in front of you when they're saying they're sorry you know are they just reciting something or is it heartfelt and let's not forget here you know like the kind of activities that the Irish Patients Association does we deal with patients who have had many other similar experiences in other types of um, uh, 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 diseases or illnesses Mm -hmm. and so on so 
this is why this, refor- this, this review is so important, because it's not just going to be dealing with the uh, tragedy of the uh, cervical screening, but it will also have huge implications for patients everywhere not just uh, uh, for patients with cervical uh, cancer and so on. And this is why it would be very useful for consultants. They know themselves. They can easily know the patients that they spoke to. And when they read those quotes in that report, they can pick up the phone and phone in, you know, uh, Mary Jo or whatever to to actually, would you mind coming in? I'd like to speak to you and, and make an apology. And oftentimes that's all a patient wants. You know, they're happy mm. once they hear that. Okay. Stephen, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much as always. Stephen McMahon, spokesperson for the Irish Patients Association. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you probably saw, around 80 farmers protested at the McCann farm just outside of uh, Trim yesterday against a forced sale of uh, the family land, which is to be sold by an online action in the coming weeks by a vulture fund, Promontoria, who bought the uh, farm from Ulster Bank in recent times. The protest was organised by the IFA, which says it'll stand four square behind the McCanns and Martin Stapleton, farm business chairman for the IFA, is on the line. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Perhaps uh, you'd tell us why there is such support uh, to block this sale. Good morning, Michael. Um, the reason why there is support to block the sale is because, um, in this case, the case of the McCanns, you have a family who have a debt, recognised to have a debt. Uh, want to pay back that debt uh, and are willing to pay back that debt have the ability to pay back that debt should they be given time to do so um, we live in a country now where the banks are selling uh, loans that are get, that get into trouble um, and with that sale goes the opportunity for a restructure um, and that's what we're fighting for here for the McCann's is that, that the McCann's will get the right to restructure that debt and to pay it back over the appropriate time frame. Uh, and if anybody does buy the land, they'd be mad in the head, I, I take it, given the position that the IFA is taking. Well, yeah, I suppose you could say it like that, Michael. But I mean, I mean, you're going, to, you're going to freeze them out if somebody buys the land. They're they're not going to be able to work the land. Well, what we did yesterday was to give support to the McCanns mm. to say that their position is 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 an entirely credible one. Mm, mm. But most importantly, and I think the biggest support that the McCanns got yesterday was from the local farmers. Mm. When you have a situation where you call a protest, um, 70, between 70 and 80 of the local farmers, their neighbours and friends, came to support them. That's the indication of the support that they have mm. and the indication of the goodwill that they have. And, and it goes with that. This uh, but the, 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 the message was predominantly to potential buyers, wasn't it, rather than uh, to Promontoria, in that uh, you can sell it if you want, but you'd be mad to buy it. That's, I, I like the two that go hand in hand together. Mm. The, the best option for Promotoria as a loan o- owner here is either to restructure the debt or else to settle for um, what the McCanns can come up with right now. And it is a, a significant debt. You say you've looked at it in, in detail. Tell us the details, if you would. Well, I, I, to give a broad out, outline of it, the McCanns borrowed the money. Um, 800,000, was it? 800,000. Um, they have paid a substantial amount off that debt. They have sold other assets to pay. Mm. Um, but because of the way the system works, penalty interest... Um, because they've fallen into arrears. Exactly, because yes. they've fallen into arrears, penalty interest. Mm. They, they, in effect, owe the same amount as what they started off with. Okay. Uh, and if, if should have, but our point here, Michael, is, is 
these men are willing to pay back this money. They need the time to do so. They don't need their debt called in right now. How long That's have they been in arrears? Well, they, they have continued to pay over the, the, the last few. Uh, they have continued to pay over the period of the loan. They haven't paid enough as such to, to, to have stayed out of arrears. Um, so it's about it's about giving them the opportunities to put a proposal. Uh, or they have put a proposal, but to have that proposal accepted to put a plan in place which gives them the time to pay back that. Alternatively, they're willing to put, and they have put a proposal in which says, um, we will pay, this is as much as we can afford, and that includes a, a sale of some land uh, and what they can sustainably borrow mm. with, with, under the current banking system from, from, from a bank right now, and the, the fund will get a lump sum up now, which is far more than they would get if, we, if they were to sell the land, if the, if the fund was to proceed and sell the land. Okay, but I, I gather there's been a, a problem here for years, that they've been years in arrears, uh, because as I understand it, they had brought it down to 500,000, but went back up to the 800,000. Is that correct? So they're 300,000 in, in arrears? In general terms, yes. Yes. So so, so how, how how long have they been in arrears? Well, it's difficult to answer that question. Um the loan has been in arrears for, oh, I would say, the best part of eight years at this stage. But the, the level of arrears is what's important as you go along and the fact that they've been continuing to pay. The, the Ulster Bank sold the loan. Mm. Um, uh, 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 and were they, were they paying to Ulster Bank? Yes. They had but, a, not, but not enough. It, it, um, did they have a, a restructuring agreement in place? <laughs> I'm not, I actually don't know enough of the details enough to know whether they had a restructuring agreement in place with Ulster Bank. But Ulster Bank sold the loan. Um, and once the loan is sold, the fund has no interest in any sort of restructuring agreement. The fund just wants to get the money, the value of the security back immediately. And they have sought to do that by appointing a receiver um, and selling putting the land up for sale and selling the land. OK, but uh, if they're eight years in uh, arrears, uh, can I ask you, or do you know uh, how long it would take to pay off the debt? I think, um, roughly speaking, given their repayment capacity at the moment, they could pay off the debt somewhere uh, over 20, in somewhere over 20 years they could pay off the debt. OK, which would be seen as a reasonable time frame, I suppose, in the case of most mortgages. Uh, and uh, that's the... Uh, grounds for the IFA supporting the McCanns. Uh, is this the first time you've taken a, a position of this sort? Um, y- yes, to to to, uh, to to the extent that we have done yesterday, it's the first time that we have gone this far. Um, you know, to go this far, what we have to have is people who have the ability to pay pay their debt off, uh, people who are willing to pay, who acknowledge that, they, that it's their duty to pay that debt. Um, and then many, many of our farmers would shy away from taking on the publicity that went with what we did yesterday. Mm. So you had to have farmers who are willing um, to have their affairs made public. And to the McCann's credit, they were willing to do that yesterday. Um, they made a stand and it, it takes, and I must applaud them for the courage that it takes in order to do that. Uh, and you're willing to negotiate or to help negotiate on their part, is it? Absolutely. Absolutely. We have been trying to do that, but we have so far met with a brick wall that says um, we're selling this for what we can, we're taking what we can get for it. Mm. And that's the only engagement that there's been? Yeah. Okay. So uh, it, the whole point of yesterday is to force a proper engagement. Mm. So uh, if we can prevent the sale, the fund will have no option but to, to try to engage. 
Okay. Uh, and is this a, a position the IFA uh, intends uh, to take uh, again with other landowners uh, yes. who have distressed um, loans? Yeah. I mean, this, the, the position that we adopted yesterday is based on the principles that we have adopted at National Council, which is to say that, like I said, where, where a farmer has the ability to pay and the willingness to pay, that they're entitled to have the opportunity to have their debt restructured. Um, and we, we are and we, we are standing four square behind people who find themselves in that position. Um, and, and as I said already, we would have had many of those people but who would have shied away from the publicity as it goes with something like what we did yesterday. Okay. Well, it's a, a very strong message uh, that you sent out, as I said at the beginning of it all, to any potential buyers, uh, which uh, is uh, the point. Can, as I, you can I just say, Michael, mm-hmm. yeah. um, it's a huge problem we have in this country is the amount of uh, debt that the banks are carrying. Uh, and it's a problem that needs to be faced up to and needs to be sorted out. But it'll say an awful lot about us um, as a nation, whether or not we go down the road of just uh, appointing receivers and selling the assets to those people, or whether we give them the opportunity, should they wish to do so, to restructure that debt and to pay it back over time. Um, that's a test that we will face as a nation over the coming months and years. Okay. And IFA are very much on the side of where people want and are committed, which is never an easy thing to do, to commit probably a working lifetime to pay back debt. But where people are committed, IFA are committed to ensuring that they get the opportunity to do that. Okay, Martin, stay in touch with us, uh, will you? I think there'll be a, a lot of interest in the outcome of this, uh, not just uh, on behalf of uh, the McCanns or their neighbours, uh, but further afield. And uh, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Martin Stapleton, IFA Farm Business Chairman. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now to uh, the response uh, to the burst water main in Navan on uh, Tuesday. Sinn Féin TD, Padder Tobin on uh, the line. And you're critical of how Irish Water dealt with this and that it's an ongoing problem, I understand. Yeah, the, the Proudstown Reservoir is the main reservoir for Navan and it supplies the drinking water for about 30,000 people. Now that um, Proudstown Reservoir is linked into Navan via a mains that runs under the main road, the Kingscourt Road uh, from Navan, and three years in a row that has burst. Um, and that's left whole sections of Navan without water uh, for long periods of time, this time well over 24 hours. Uh, and it has a serious impact on businesses, on families and services. And it's also meant that that road has been closed uh, mm. needlessly for a number of occasions, which has mean, meant that obviously families and businesses again have been hit and there's a number of building sites in that area uh, over the last few days haven't been able to receive deliveries. And there's a number of families up there that have been hit a number of times with regards to flooding. Indeed, one family has had its house destroyed uh, with flooding on a number of occasions and have had to leave their home uh, for long periods of time and indeed have had to f- uh, fight for any financial support to fix their home as well. Mm. Now, on this occasion... It was marginally less impactful because there was some level of reconfiguration of the mains water into Navan. So more water is coming from the Carn Hill Reservoir, which allowed for some some houses to receive water. And um, you'd applaud Irish water for that, I presume. I would. I yeah, would. Yeah, like, yeah. It, it, I mean, it, this it, is it, a problem they've inherited, uh, and pipes burst. As terrible as it is, and I don't mean to underplay this, uh, but uh, I mean you're used to it, as is the case all around the country, and this is why Irish Water is saying the whole system needs to be upgraded. We actually have probably good news from Irish Water, and it's not often I come on your radio show and say that. Uh, I've been in contact with them a number of times yesterday. Now, I was critical of them, um, because they had said they were going to uh, 
replace that particular mains uh, last year and that didn't happen in this year. Uh, and indeed it wasn't on their planned uh, infrastructural development on their website or any of the reports up until this week. But late last night, in contact with uh, Irish Water, they have said to me that they are now planning to build a new mains water pipeline from Proudstown Reservoir to Carn Hill. And they state that that will be operational in 2021. Mm. And this means that um, the, the, uh, the, the, the problematic pipeline that's bursting every year uh, will be decommissioned after that. So that is good mm. news for my uh, And that's, that's the response uh, that was given to us uh, yeah. following on from uh, the query we put to them because of the complaints that you brought to us. Uh, so that, I, I take it, came as a surprise to you that they're on the job. It was it was a happy surprise. Uh, the level, Michael, the level of frustration in Avon can't be overestimated on this. And you can understand that, of course, water pipes will burst. Mm. And of course, it might even happen twice in the same spot uh, if you're unlucky. But to allow it happen, obviously, three times in the same spot and have, you know, year after year, and nearly like clockwork, last yeah. year it was in August, this year it was in September. But this isn't like Irish Water's problem, is it? No, but no, this there is, is, an, this is, this is, is the in- problem of an antiquated system, uh, not it's just in Navan, but across the country. It's terrible. I mean, ask uh, the people who've uh, been suffering in Drogheda for years because of the ongoing burst on the North Quay uh, and in various it's, pockets it's of the country. It's a problem, Michael, of a lack of investment. Yes. And I've been on your show a number of times where I've indicated that Ireland's infrastructural investment is at the bottom in European terms. So, for example, the only country in the last number of years that invests less in capital infrastructure is Romania within the EU. Yeah, and now, Irish Water want eighteen billion, isn't it, to invest in upgrading the system? Ireland, Irish Water need more money to upgrade in in this infrastructure for, for sure. And that's why right they now, wanted right, to introduce right now, water we're, we're charges. Going, just, just before we go, in, we're going into an election cycle in uh, very very shortly, in which Ireland's uh, infrastructural spend will still be at the bottom in European terms, mm. and where this government, in actual fact, won't raise that up even to the European average as of yet. We have a serious infrastructural deficit. Well, this, this country, government, as you put it, wanted it, to raise it up, didn't they? They wanted to well, introduce water charges so that there would be more money available to Irish we, water, we, and you stopped that. We do have water. Been a replacement. I we know do we do, water, but, we, but there hasn't been, a, there hasn't been an alternative problem. funding system. We do have water charges in, in this country in the terms of taxation. The, we have a system mm. in this country whereby you pay for the water you receive through your taxation on the basis of your a- ability to pay. Mm. And that's deemed the most progressive way to pay for water. Now, the fact that uh, Leo Varadkar's government gave 1.5 billion euros back in tax breaks mm. over the last three years shows that infrastructural spend is, in their view, not how you actually win elections. But my view in this is that Fine Gael your your view is, it, is that, you, that that you politicise water, isn't it? But it's, it, this is. It, I mean, there was a burst water main in Navan, uh, and you made contact with LMFM saying this is a disgrace. It's the third time in however many months that the thing is out, and are, they're doing nothing about it. They promised to clear it up. We get in touch with Irish Water. They were very efficient by all accounts in fixing a problem that they inherited, and they have a plan in place despite the lack of funding. Uh, and you're surprised by that this morning, but still making the point that it's Leo Radker's problem. First of all. What I'm saying to you is there is massive frustration, and rightly so in me, due to the fact that we have a stretch of road which is about 100 metres long, which has 
repeatedly uh, burst over the last number of years. We also know factually that Ireland's infrastructural spend is on the floor. Mm. And we know that's a political decision. Well, I know, so but what if, I'm saying if, to you we is if, look, can I finish if, the, but if there please, wasn't Irish like, water... I, I if, need to finish the sentence. Okay. We need to be able to draw the dots on this. Mm. It is not accidental that the investment is so low. It's a political decision that the, uh, that the investment is so low. But it hasn't it anything to do with Irish an water, has it? An opposition TD to push the government into the necessary infrastructural spend. And the second thing in this is, Meath's infrastructure is worse than other counties. Mm. Indeed, I've spoken to uh, the Department of Enterprise and the IDA on this, and they have told me that the reason why Meath doesn't get the same jobs investment as Louth, Kildare and Wicklow, three comparable counties, is because Meath doesn't have the same water infrastructure as those three counties. Okay, would it be any different if... Meath County Council had responsibility for the water infrastructure rather than Irish water. First of all, the delivery of the water infrastructure is not the key element here. The key element is the level of investment mm. of these organisations. So, it has, so, so this is not Irish water's fault. I am not going. To, the problem in this, in this, in this is I am not pointing the finger at Irish water. I am pointing the finger at the lack of investment. I'm trying to get the government and Fine Gael to say, listen, we have infrastructural problems. We have no rail line in County Mead. We don't have proper water systems in Mead. We don't have a wastewater system in Mead that allows we don't, for we don't, big, we don't big have international 18, firms we, we don't have 18 billion. And I'm saying, listen, let's spend the money on the infrastructure and then make it a good place to do business, make it a good place to live, and then we'll have the jobs that will follow and we won't have the problems with commuting that we have uh, currently. This can be fixed. It just needs a political decision to do it. And that political and decision lies with Fine Gael at the moment. A political decision and a few bob to fund it. Well, uh, like if, if you can find a way to build uh, necessary infrastructure without a few bob, yeah. I would, I'd be definitely <laughs> I would be voting you for president. <laughs> That's the point. OK, listen, thank you indeed for joining us. No bother at all. That's uh, Sinn Féin TD for me, West Patrick Toby. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to all our listeners. Charlie from Navin was listening in to your interview at the top of the programme in relation to the Scally findings, Michael. And he says that the whole thing really is a sad indictment on the country. He says you don't have to be intelligent to have manners and to show a bit of courtesy towards patients. I'm just picking up on bits and pieces of it like everybody else. And it just strikes me, what about accountability, that somebody has to be at fault. Well, yeah, well, I mean, you're not at fault if you don't have to tell. And disclosure is one of the problems. There's now talk of mandatory disclosure. In other words, that the doctors would tell you if there is something to tell you and that they would have to tell you and that they'd be in trouble if they didn't. Dr Scally uh, spoke about this yesterday. We'll hear a little bit more of him now as well. Uh, and indeed uh, about the heroes of this report who are the women themselves. And you just have to listen to these women. I, I recounted actually uh, in, a, in, in one of the meetings uh, two women young women uh, came to the meeting sat down beside each other uh, they were from the same they eventually they worked out they knew each other from school they were both in the same position during the course of the meeting, at one point, one of them got up and said, you know, we knew each other, we sat down beside us. As a result of both of our experiences of the non-disclosure and then the subsequent disclosure, we both lost confidence in our consultants looking after us and we both independently decided to switch to the other one's consultant. 
Now, this loss of uh, confidence is affecting women now. And I think, uh, as well as the psychological damage that was done uh, and, and the general damage that must be done to patient-doctor uh, relationship, this open disclosure issue, and you just have to see in the report the way in which I've set out how the HSE policy and then the joint HSC-State uh, Claims Agency guidelines operate. This is not open disclosure. This is not open disclosure. So uh, that would be my, my top. Let me deal with the uh, issue of the route. Now, there you go. That's uh, probably in response uh, to that comment. Uh, there isn't open disclosure, so there is no onus on the doctors to give the information. Charlie Aldo also wanted to mention the interview yesterday with Rosie Condra. He said that he felt that it really put it in perspective to hear uh, one of those involved in the whole scandal speak and also express her feelings in relation to the leaking of the report. He said it just put the whole thing in perspective to him and he wanted to thank the station and thank her for the interview. Okay, yes, um, well done to Rosie uh, and uh, uh, somebody uh, who will be well known to many people uh, because uh, she's local in the first instance uh, but also uh, somebody uh, who has worked with many of the people listening to us uh, who've been patients themselves That's under right. her care in Our Lady of Earth's Hospital. Mairead from Drogheda got in touch and says that she finds just listening to the contents of the report that it just reminds her of the poor treatment towards women in Ireland. Mm. And she says she just wonders and she can't help thinking, Michael, would men have been treated the same way? She thinks that she, she can't understand why nobody thought it would be the right thing to do to sit down with the women and tell them face to face that they were affected. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Before this broke, yeah. you know, that when it, it first transpired. Yeah, uh, and uh, to speculate as to why it happened uh, and, you know, uh, who's to say who's to get cancer and who's not. Uh, and uh, one of uh, the most disturbing parts of uh, the report uh, was uh, the meeting that one of the families of a, a deceased woman had with one of the consultants. There's an account in here of one episode. And it, uh, I, I'm difficulty speaking about this one. One episode, uh, and it was of a, uh, a deceased woman. I spoke to the members of her family at their request. Uh, they were too distressed or upset uh, or concerned to come to one of my meetings, but they did want to meet to me. 
and I met with them. And they told me, and I'll not name uh, as tell you who the family group was, because this ha- has to remain, uh, I-, I promised them, and they agreed I could say this, uh, but I-, I don't want it in any way to be traced back to them. They said they went in for their disclosure meeting, and the consultant uh, said several times about uh, the late woman's smoking habit, and also told them that nuns don't get cervical cancer. Now, if that isn't paternalism, what it's verging on misogyny, isn't it? If that isn't paternalism, what is it? That's uh, Dr. Gabriel Scully speaking yesterday, and I suppose uh, that goes back or harps back to what he had said previously uh, about uh, the women being angry that they weren't told when the information was known to the doctors, but equally as angry when they were told about the way that they were told. Catherine was in touch, and Catherine says that she's been in tears listening to some of the contents of the report. She says, although not directly affected, it could have been any of us, Michael, and this is what we have to take into consideration and also to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again. Hmm. Well, that's the 50 recommendations uh, and uh, we're being promised that, uh, well, I think we're being promised that they'll be implemented, they've been accepted by the government and I presume that means that they'll be implemented uh, and uh, Dr Scully has also set out uh, a way of reviewing how they are being implemented. Quite often with reports, uh, you look back on them months or years later and find that many of the recommendations haven't uh, been implemented, so only time will tell. Eileen phoned in and Eileen says people are talking about um, how badly the women were treated, um, not just in the whole misdiagnosis, but in the way they were told or not told. Mm. And she says, but yet, have we learned anything from that, Michael? Because then we had the leaking of the report, mm. which was another insult to the women. Again, no consideration. And again, will anything be done about this? Very angry over that particular aspect of it. Mm, indeed, as I, I think many people were. Uh, some were more hurt than angry. Some more were yes. more angry than hurt. Uh, but it, it certainly upset a, an awful lot of people. Moving away from that, Michael, then to the IFA. Um, just your interview there. Peter and Dundalk says, could the IFA buy the land from the vultures and sell it back to the McCanns? Could that be an option? Peter wants to know. Another listener on Pader Tobin, your interview in relation to the situation regarding water supply says, I don't know about this. Uh, Michael Sinn Féin campaigned against water charges. Maybe if we had water charges, Irish Water might have the money to fund replacement of all these water pipes. Mm, well, that's uh, part of the conversation we had. And Pader Tobin said, we do have water charges. We pay for it in our taxes. Um, moving from that, we you know just Tony from Midloud just wanted to com- send a comment in. A Sinn Féin have left the people of the North and South down in the Brexit negotiations by not going to Westminster to discuss the Brexit issue in relation to Ireland. I think they are still in God's own time, says Tony. OK, so I take it Tony would have voted for them to take up their seats in Westminster. He must, yeah, well. Okay, well, maybe he'll get the opportunity uh, in time to come to uh, vote for somebody to take a a seat in the British Parliament. David um, texted in regarding the Fianna Fáil thinking, and he's just referring to the various statements and interviews from the party leader, Micheál Martin, and he says he just felt it was the worst effort to promote a political party he has ever heard. They deliver nothing but the same old rhetoric. 
Fianna Fáil may as well just go and join the Fine Gael party. No, none of their own policy or vision, he says. They need to wake up and take a leaf out of Sinn Féin's book or they can kiss goodbye to any future in politics. A good start would be supporting a no-confidence vote in Owen Murphy. And he says this would at least show the electorate some respect. Said like a true shinner, David. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, Uh, David didn't happen to mention that he's a a member of Sinn Féin or a member of uh, the staff in the Sinn Féin press office or anything like that, no? No, it was was a text in, so there was no verbal interaction. I'm sure Sinn Féin have uh, promoted party policies much worse than they did at the Fianna Fáil thinking. Have I time for one or two more? Agnes from Drogheda was listening to your interview with Richard Boyd Barrett yesterday day from people before mm. profit and the commentary surrounding Trump and the visit and she says that I don't know about uh, people objecting to Donald Trump coming to Ireland. He never did any harm to the Irish, did he Michael? She wants to know and yet we have welcomed the Queen and Prince Charles from across the water. She says I know he is a bit of a loose cannon but he hasn't done anything to this country and he represents the people of America. She says I think it's crazy to be so anti the visit. I don't know about that. I I think uh, he's done a, a lot of damage to all of the Irish women, to all of the women of the world, uh, to the right to equality, uh, to respect, uh, and uh, to many of the very important issues that affect us in all of our daily lives. And she's right in saying that he's the leader of the American people, the American leader, uh, but I'm not sure how much respect I have for a country that would vote that nincompoop into office. Okay, don't hold back there. Martin phoned in and Martin agreed with uh, Richard Boyd Barrett and congratulated him on his comments to you. He said also that he was listening in relation to the top richest people in Ireland. Mm. And he says, I wonder if they are all paying their fair share of tax in this country or what should be the fair share of tax. He thinks, and I don't think this will go down too well, that there should be a compulsory order to take some of their wealth off them and put it back into the state to take children out of guard stations and to house them properly. He believes nobody should be allowed to earn that type of money. And he'd love to know if the likes of the big music acts in this country um, are taking money out of this country. What contribution do they pay? So that's his thoughts on it. Okay, Doug. Will we finish on that one, then? All right, thanks for that, Marie. Thanks, everybody, who's been in touch with us today. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 our telephone number, or you can text us on 086 Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, Matt Carthy, uh, Sinn Féin member of uh, the European Parliament, uh, joins us uh, to talk uh, about Jean-Claude Juncker's final State of the Union address, which he, he gave yesterday. But before we do that, Matt Carthy, can we talk uh, about Article 7.1, which members of uh, the Parliament uh, triggered yesterday? This will see a sanction against Hungary because of many issues uh, that parliamentarians have indeed many NGOs have with uh, Hungary uh, and its treatment of its people and people trying to come into Hungary for that matter. Yeah, so what happened yesterday was that MEPs endorsed our report um, from a Green MEP that essentially, as you say, recommended sanctions 
against Hungary. Now, this is in many respects just the first in what could be a very lengthy process that could amount to very little if the council, which is the member state governments, don't agree to impose some level of sanctions. I think the clear hope that many MEPs would have is that the Hungarian government would um, address some of the concerns that have been put in place. So Hungary has elected a right-wing government. There are members of the EPP group, which are the group in which um, Fine Gael are members, but even members of that group yesterday um, have been um, have been so exposed that they actually also supported the resolution to put in place sanctions. And you have a mm. scenario whereby a lot of the legislation that is emanating from Hungary at the minute would remind people of much darker periods in our history, particularly in relation to not only how they deal with refugees, but they've put in mm. place measures that actually criminalise anybody who helps refugees. It's, um, it's seen, seen as a, an unconstitutional country. Uh, there's no independence of uh, the judiciary. That report that you spoke about uh, has concerns about freedom of association, the right to equal treatment, the right of people belonging to minorities, including Roma and Jews, uh, migrants, asylum seekers, refugees and more. The upshot of this could be that Hungary loses its voting rights in the European Parliament. What's the worst case potential scenario for Hungary? Could it lose membership? Potentially, as I say, that's a long way down the line. We've already heard the Polish government, for example, who um, are also facing potential sanctions, saying that they will use their veto to block any sanctions against Hungary. Um, The unfortunate fact is, as a result of I would argue um, a disconnect between um, the European institutions and between uh, politics generally and ordinary citizens across Europe. That we have seen the growth in far-right parties um, in many member states. They have exploited a lot of the genuine concerns that ordinary people have and have directed their anger to essentially people who are actually poorer than those who are disconnected in the first place. So they have... Um, they have exploited the, the migrant crisis and um, hostility to austerity policies and others to take power in countries like Hungary and then have set about implementing a regime of policies that are very sinister in many respects, as you've outlined there, mm-hmm. targeting minorities, targeting refugees, targeting people who disagree with the, with the government's position. So we've seen frustrations being put in place in terms of how the media do its work. As you mentioned, there have been judicial reforms that have raised serious questions in terms of the independence of the judiciary. Mm-hmm. And then you have seen measures being put in place that have actually criminalised people for carrying out humanitarian work, which to me um, is a very worrying development. So I, I think what we what we will hopefully see in the short term is real um, steps being taken. So one of the things that could happen very quickly, for example, is that the EPP kicked the Fidesz party, which is um, Victor mm. Orban's party in the European party, out of their pol- political group. I think that would be a very strong message in the first instance. Um, and then after that, I think there is um, there are questions to be asked in terms of how governments within the EU, because there are some who will be allied to Victor Orban's party and to... Um, to that government, but there are other governments who should who could take bilateral um, steps in relation to cooling off the relationship between uh, between Hungary 
and other member states in, for so long as the Hungarian government in pursuit okay. of current. But it's a, a slap on the wrist uh, uh, as we speak, uh, despite uh, the very convincing vote to sanction them, 448 to 197, I think it was. But it puts Hungary in the bold corner for the moment. Where it goes from there, God knows. Ireland anywhere but in the bold corner. The best boys in the class and unwavering support from Juncker yesterday for Ireland in the Brexit negotiations but at what cost I suppose is the next question is it in terms of adjusting policies here on defence or on taxation? Well I suppose first of all it would be remiss not to welcome the remarks that um, Jean-Claude Juncker made in relation to Ireland and Brexit. Um, We're entering into a very difficult I suppose um, confusing period of the Brexit negotiations and we do need the European Union. We need, we also need the Irish government in the first instance to remain steadfast in relation to um, the implications for Brexit and the implementation of the backstop at a very minimum in relation to protecting the island of Ireland um, with regard to the north. Um, there were also some other elements of Jean-Claude Juncker's speech yesterday that I think would be broadly welcomed in terms of certainly his rhetoric. The difficulty was, as you said, that despite the fact that the European Commission have been given several messages from people, citizens right across Europe through the democratic process, that people are uncomfortable with some of the trajectories that the Commission is on. Um, Jean-Claude Juncker's response appears to have been um, on behalf of the Commission that they intend to do what they always intended to do, only maybe do it quicker than was originally envisaged and certainly with less democratic oversight than was originally envisaged. So despite the fact, for example, that lots of member states, including Ireland, Mm. have consistently rejected the proposal for qualified majority voting in relation to taxation um, um, matters, and the very fact that Juncker put that front and centre in yesterday's speech signals that the Commission are determined to move Maybe they've run out of patience, though, with the chancers in places like Ireland. No, I think I think it should ring alarm bells for Irish people in particular, because if you um, consider, as we do, that there are lots of issues relating to taxation matters that mm. need to be addressed um, at national level, including Ireland, particularly in relation to how we treat some corporates. Um, in a to very make ourselves generous, competitive, uh, but to, to, to well, no, not necessarily to make in no, in some instances the only outworking of um, of our taxation policies is to provide with corporations with the mechanism to avoid paying taxes mm. in other countries. There's there's no benefit to Ireland whatsoever. We're simply you know a big um, laundry. But even despite that, um, I'm a firm believer, always have been, the taxation policy can only be. Um, um, it can only be dealt with at a national level. But unless you have a, a one-size-fits-all policy, there'll always be loopholes, will there not? And the chancers in places like Ireland will always find those loopholes and allow people to avoid paying tax and come here so that we get the jobs. No, well, first of all, um, you will... Yeah, arguably there will always be discrepancies, but there's no reason why you would have loopholes that allow corporations to avoid paying billions of euro in tax. And all you need in order to avoid that happening is an actual transparent taxation process. And oftentimes the Irish government, and we've discussed this on several Mm. occasions, have used 
the arguments around tax sovereignty to undermine proposals in relation to tax um, transparency. They do. And they, well, they always say that we're the most transparent country in the world uh, and there's nothing to hide. Well, we're not. Um, in fact, Ireland is one of the countries that has been opposing a proposal for public country-by-country hmm. report. But, that, but, but that's the point, that when you uh, allow countries to make these decisions, to implement these policies on a, a sovereign basis, uh, you'll always have sovereign chancers, will you not? You may do, but then it is, in my view, the responsibility of citizens in countries to elect different governments. And this is the fundamental problem, because taxation is one of the key areas. How it is raised and how it is spent is the key responsibility of government. Mm. If you remove those powers away from national government, well, then you end up having a further disconnection between citizens and the places where power um, and decisions are made. And that results in disconnection, it results in anger and it results in disenfranchisement that actually leads to the growth of the of the far right. But, the could, problem but is couldn't you do both? Could I mean, couldn't you have a one-size-fits-all European policy in terms of taxation and allow countries to make sovereign decisions at, at the same time, that you would set minimum standards, that you would have a uh, corporation tax rate, let's say, of 12.5% or 6% or 2%, and that uh, it would be implemented on that basis at a minimum uh, and between that and 99%. Up to you, make up your mind, but none of this pretending it's 12.5% and companies coming here and paying 0%. In order to avoid the situation whereby you have a situation where you have a headline figure of taxation rates where companies are actually paying a different rate, all you need to deal with is actually transparency issues. You don't actually need to hand over powers to an unelected European Commission. And in this regard, I think it's really and crucially important because I absolutely dislike, I abhor some of the economic policies of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael governments. But I believe fundamentally that the way in which I can change those policies is by convincing the Irish people that there is a better, a fairer way, a more progressive um, and more prosperous long-term way of implementing economic policy and putting that to the people and asking them to elect a Sinn Féin-led government in this instance. That if a Sinn Féin-led government take, comes into place and implements a taxation policy that people don't like, they can then kick us out. The difficulty is when you hand over powers, and we see this in relation to monetary mm. policy, we've seen the implication of fiscal policy being yeah, handed but, but, over. But that's not the happening. Is that if the people of a member mm. state don't like that policy or feel that that policy isn't serving them, not only do they have to kick out their own government, but they have to hope that 27 other countries decide to do so otherwise. And you will invariably end up in the situation with um, taxation policy that we have with monetary policy. But do, do, monetary do you think people are stupid? No, what no but, but if people weren't stupid, then the, the, the parties that you're talking about uh, would realise uh, that they're doing something wrong, uh, but they're not doing something wrong because this is what people want. People want no, the well, jobs. View, People never, want the I jobs never, at any cost. It's a little bit like the Americans uh, electing Donald Trump. No, well, my view has always been that people aren't stupid. If people don't vote for Sinn Féin, for example, it's because we in Sinn Féin haven't convinced them yet. And it's our job, in, and that's the nature of um, of political manoeuvre. And what I don't people want People listening happen- to us this morning aren't worried about people in, in the third world or in Eastern European countries or other countries that are losing out because of our taxation policies or policies that allow tax avoidance in this country. They just want the jobs. 
Yes, but and this is part of my job in relation to articulating the position is that not only are all of those people who you mentioned suffering, but as a result of the economic policies pursued by Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, people in Drogheda and Navan and Carrick Cross are also suffering because we are actually undermining our own our own um, sustainability into the long term. Because so as a result of the policies pursued by Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, we have a situation where most young people listening to your programmes cannot envisage a prospect of them being able to purchase their own home. While they may have a job, they don't have the quality of life that they would like to see in terms of the, what mm. their wage packet can pay for at the end of All the right, let, 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 let's, let, let's take that statement uncontested. Let's say you're right, OK? Uh, and... That, that, that's the reason that this policy fails. Let's say that's right. Are you going to convince people listening to us this morning that that is the case? And if not, why not allow the European Commission to put in place a system that demands fairness? Well, because first of all, I don't want... My nightmare scenario as a political activist all my life is a situation where we elect the Sinn Féin government. And then when that government is in place, it finds out it can't do any of the things that it wants to do because the powers have been transferred over to a European Commission. The evidence has shown in relation to fiscal and monetary policy, and this happens um, at a national level. You can see the bias towards Dublin in terms of policy provisions, but at the European level, invariably and undisputedly, what ends up happening in relation to these big policy areas is that the onus will be on the best interests of the larger member states, such as Germany in particular, and the peripheral states, such as Ireland and other con- smaller countries, end up working um, in, in to, to that tune. And sometimes those decisions, particularly in relation to monetary policy, that may benefit arguably even the majority of the EU, I think that's disputable, but certainly doesn't benefit us, cannot be changed because the course has already okay. been set. And to me, that's fundamentally undemocratic. And to me, that's actually a recipe for actually building discontentment with the European institutions. And while we're working at the moment to ensure that all of Ireland remains part of the European Union, we want to ensure that it is a European Union that's based on the premise of respect and national democracy. Okay. But that's the only way in which it can sustain itself into the future. We'll leave it there, but I'm sure you'll agree with me that this conversation isn't over. Thank you indeed. <laughs> Thank you Thank for joining us. Matt Carthy, Sinn Féin MEP. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Crime Victims Helpline is publishing its annual report today and it shows uh, that uh, the line was 10% busier last year than the year previous and 40% busier that year than in 2015. Last year there were some 4,455 victims of crime who contacted the service and Michelle Puckhaber, Executive Director of the Crime Victims Helpline joins us. Uh, The line gets busier and busier, Michelle. Is that because of increased awareness or because of an increase in crime, do you think? Well, we are definitely doing more um, to raise awareness of our services on our free phone helpline, which is 116006. So we are, we are increasing our outreach and hoping that more people are aware of our, our services. Um, and as well, though, you know, we have seen at least the crime statistics show an increase um, in the amount of crime, at least reported crime, over the past year. Okay, and we'll repeat that telephone number, which is a free phone number, in a few moments for people. I suppose uh, it probably won't be as too much of a surprise to people to learn that uh, crimes such as assault, harassment and indeed burglary are some of uh, the reasons people come to you more often than for. 
Yeah, so across the years, that's very consistent that that is why, you know, people are, are reaching out and looking for both emotional support and information about the criminal justice system around those types of crimes. Um, because, again, you know, that's, it's so prevalent and so many people do experience those sorts of crimes. Three times as many people contacted you last year than previously in relation to domestic violence. Yeah, so that was a big surprise for us. That was a very big change last year, and it's something that we noticed as the year went on, that, that we were definitely hearing more from from people who were impacted by domestic violence-related crimes. And now we don't, we don't, um, we don't know why. Um, obviously, there is um, a big awareness campaign that COSC did, mm. a national campaign as well. There was the Me Too movement. So, you know, we're not quite sure why that happened. Is it um, because of referrals, perhaps? Has there been a, a change of attitude within Angarda Shiakana because uh, the guards have been criticised in terms of how uh, they responded to domestic violence crimes? Yeah, we know that the guards are sharing um, the crime victim's hotline information uh, more and more, um, and there's an increasing awareness of our services within Angarda Shiakana as well. Um, but they also would direct um, victims of domestic violence to the Women's Aid National um, Helpline, and so you know because they would provide the specialist support for people mm. who again are experiencing or impacted by domestic violence. Um, so you know we would hope that that the guardie would be directing people to the the specialist services of, of women's aid or other local domestic violence um, organizations. Um, but you, our attitude is there's no wrong door for someone to get help. And mm. so when someone rings into us, um, we're a generalized support service. Um, after initial conversation, um, we would you know, try to get them to the most appropriate service. Um, again, so for domestic violence, there's the domestic violence you know, helpline um, as well as local services. And that um, you would help them up to a, a point and then get them uh, more uh, specialised uh, services from the likes of, of Women's Aid or in the case of sexual assault from the Rape Crisis Centre or 1 in 4. And indeed, uh, you've had twice as many people uh, in contact with you in relation to sex crimes. That's right, yeah. So we saw a huge increase in both um, uh, rape and sexual assault as well as the domestic violence. And so that corresponded, again, with um, us telling people about those more specialized services so they can get ongoing, uh, really quality support um, as, they, as they deal with those crimes. Okay. Tell us uh, what happens or, or, or what you can do for me if I'm victim of a, a crime and I decide to contact you. Yeah, so we do um, kind of three things. One is we're a listening service. We provide time and space for people to talk, um, if that's what they want to do. So about 40% of our our calls, the primary reason why someone is ringing in is they just want to vent, they want to just um, talk about you know what's happened to them. Um, and we also provide a lot of information about the criminal justice system. So there's a portion of people who don't want to talk at all, and they just want to ask questions and get good you know answers to it in terms of, what happens when you make a report to the guardie? Um, you know, what happens when your case goes to court? Um, there's oftentimes a lot of questions. You know, most people don't have a lot of experience with the criminal justice system. Um, you know, and then when you're a victim of crime, suddenly you're kind of thrown into the system that is, can be very confusing. Oftentimes it's not victim-centric. It's, you know, really kind of victims can be really marginalized um, as they're going through the criminal justice system. So we just provide good information 
Um, and then the third thing we do is we tell people about other resources. So again, we already talked about for domestic violence or sexual assault, we let them know the other services that are out there that can help assist them. Um, and we also um, talk to people about counseling. Um, if they want legal advice, you know, we can um, refer them over to FLAC or other organizations. Um, so, and so those are the three things. You know, mm. some some contexts, you know, people want a little bit of all of that. Um, but whatever, you know, whatever whatever someone wants, we'll, we are guided by what the caller is is looking for. Okay, and there's uh, more information about the services that you provide on your website, which is crimevictimshelpline.ie. The free phone telephone number that you mentioned at the outset is one one six zero zero six. That's double one six double zero six. And thank you indeed for joining us this morning, Michelle. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you, Michelle Pacaber, Executive Director of the Crime Victims. In 1998, legislation was introduced uh, which uh, required local authorities to provide accommodation uh, for members of uh, the travelling community. The councils have uh, performed direly since. Since then, in fact, five times uh, the number of families are sharing, which means that 4,460 people are in overcrowded halting sites and housing. 585 families are living in unauthorised halting sites. 517 individuals are homeless and 2,387 families are in the private rented sector. That compares to 162 in 2002. What's worse is 55% million euro that was given by the government to the councils around the country to provide accommodation has been sent back to the government because it hasn't been spent. Yesterday, Minister Damien English told a meeting of the Irish Traveller movement that he's establishing an expert panel which will have six months to come up with three or four targeted solutions as part of a review of the Traveller Accommodation Act, which I mentioned, which was introduced in 1998. Let's uh, talk to some members of uh, the local authorities now. Sinead Burke, who's a Sinn Féin councillor and Meath and Independent, Nick Killian. Good morning to both of you and thanks indeed for joining us. Uh, Sinead Burke, uh, do you think uh, that the Irish Traveller movement are, are right in what they said to Minister English yesterday, that the local authorities should be bypassed and that there should be a dedicated National Traveller Accommodation Agency to deal with this problem? Um, yes and no. Um, I think that Minister English is right that there are certain counties around the country that are not utilising the money that's been set aside nationally for specific traveller accommodation. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that Meath is one of them, though. And um, I think you know me well enough by now that I'm not a cheerleader for Meath County Council. However, I would say this, that over the years, Meath has traditionally been one of the forerunners in providing traveller accommodation in the state. Um, you know, we, we've had a really good track record, and it's not just me saying that. Um, I work a lot with the travelling community, as you know, Michael, yeah. and that would be a generally held view. And However, you, you, you would also would know say, though, that where there are problems, it's the councillors that tend to be the problem. 
Yeah, but, uh, you know, we don't actually have that situation in, in Meath. Well, not that I've witnessed now. I mean, I'm barely new. Oh, sure, I'm not talking term, about Meath specifically. Yeah, look, mm-hmm. we've had desperate, desperate examples around the country of, you know, councillors um, sending out newsletters and leaflets through the door saying, don't worry, that traveller family will not be giving a house in your development. F- F- Phil Hogan, top of, of the list. Phil Hogan, yeah, top of the list, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it, 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 you know... The, the, yeah, that still exists. It certainly does around the around the country, but not to my knowledge, and certainly never witnessed that carry on during my tenure on the council. And previous to being on the council, I was fourteen years a traveller development worker, and through those fourteen years, no, I never witnessed it. That's not to say it didn't happen mm. for though for though in County Meath because it did. But no, not in recent history, it didn't. Also, with regards to um, Meath County Council's approach to traveller accommodation, we have a five-year plan and we have a specific traveller accommodation committee. Now, Nick is much more involved in the housing than me, so he'll probably have a lot more detail on this than me. I don't sit on it. but we do have a traveller accommodation plan that is that's made up of representatives from the the committee that oversees it, made up of representatives from the executive, from local councillors, and from the traveller community themselves as well. We have about four hundred and sixty, approximately, traveller families living in Meath, um, and up to date, we have been pretty good. But it, it started to slacken. And it started to slacken um, most noticeably back in the crash where traveller budgets across across like education, mm-hmm. across accommodation, everything cut by 95%. And, the, nat- the, and, and, and the national housing crisis obviously has had... Has exasperated Exactly. That. Yeah, yeah so, so stay there for a moment, Sinead. I'll come back to you and I'll, I'll, I'll ask you the same question that I'm going to ask Nick Killian now because uh, the Minister, Damien English, has said that he's going to uh, ask this panel of experts for three or four targeted solutions. What would you suggest to the Minister? Well, I think the first thing we have to take on board is the cultural identity that travellers have and where they want to live. I mean, there's an act going back to 1998, which indicates that halting sites uh, and uh, houses should be part and parcel of what the traveller community need. I think the most worrying thing that Damien English said yesterday was that his department has recruited in excess of 105 million from local authorities from a capital budget of 156 million over the last 10 years. That's absolutely awful. Now, to be fair to County Meath, and I'm, I'm delighted to hear Sinead say what she has said, mm. because you know, I've seen the two days when there was difficulties in providing halting sites in the county, and it was issues, but we've passed all that. And certainly, in my particular area, we don't have a halting site. Um, we don't have the need because the amount of travellers that are living up this way all tend to be living within the local communities themselves. So, and, and how, would, how would your neighbours respond to a halting site? Well, like anything else, like there's been a recent controversy um, on the Meads-Fingal border mm. in relation to where yep. Fingal proposed a, a site. Yeah, huge um, resistance. The reason, a huge resistance yep. to it up there. Okay. Now, the underlying thing in that, I mean, people said it had to do with the fact that it was uh, in a, a, a water plane or, you know, and mm-hmm. it shouldn't be built there. That may be the case. But the underlying thing in it was the people didn't want to halt and site up but, there. But, 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 but let's say... Um, you're looking at a similar situation uh, on your own doorstep uh, and you know that if you vote in favour of the halting side, you're going to lose your seat. Uh, there's the great temptation to do the wrong thing uh, for 
what you might perceive to be the right reason, uh, but it's just the wrong thing regardless. Uh, so given that power uh, and the perception that's involved in that power, uh, do the traveller movement, the Irish, uh, Irish traveller movement, have a point that it, they'd be better served if local authorities were bypassed? It probably, I mean, I think with the whole housing situation at the moment, you have this difficulty between the state and the local authority. I still think it's up to the local authorities to make decisions. And I certainly, as a councillor, would make the right decision for the people that I represent. But we know and that that's the not always the case. Movement. Mm. And that's not always the case. Yeah. So mm. if difficult decisions have to be made, like my dealings with the travelling community over the years has always been positive. I've never had negativity in dealing with them. And to be fair, I've never had negativity dealing with uh, their neighbours. Mm, mm, mm. and, so, and, and I'm sure you wish you could say the same of all councillors, but we all know that that's not the case. No, and, and I mean, I, I'd, I'd be very much on, on the side of trying to provide housing that meets their cultural needs. And I think we, mm. we all have to be conscious of that. And I have to say, to be fair to the late Joe Riley, and uh, he, he did huge work in, in mm. Navan with the Traveller community. And to be fair, and again, Sinead has, has taken over that mantle. But I think what's crazy is the fact that the budgets are not being spent. Okay, well, well totally. I mean, when they send back 55 million euro, it's unbelievable. It's when 105 such a pro- million, Michael. Right. 105 million okay, sent million. back in 10 years. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, even uh, worse. Okay, uh, 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 um, uh, I have different figures in front of me, but let me let me let, let me go back to Sinead Burke. Um, Nick Killian talks about the culture. Uh, part of the culture of the traveller uh, community is big families, uh, and housing a family of four is very easier than housing a family of ten or fifteen, uh, and there are challenges. Uh, but uh, just going back to the question that I said, I'd put to you. Uh, the Minister is looking for three or four solutions. What would you suggest to him? Um, first of all, I would, um, I would be vehemently against taking the power off local authorities to make these decisions. I think local authorities have been stripped of enough powers, to be brutally honest with you. Um, it came in when they abolished the town councils. I mean, we don't, for deeper sake, we don't even control who collects the bins in our counties anymore. And so this, I would be vehemently against that. Okay. We know the temperature on the ground. We're very familiar with the layout, the geography of the county. We're very familiar with the, the communities on the ground. And I would be very saddened and very angry if that um, responsibility was taken off us, to be honest with you. Um, and with regards to, you were saying there to Nick, you know, I mean, would you be willing to make the tough decision hmm. if you, you were going to lose your seat? Well, look, you know, I came into this to do a job and to do it to the best of my ability with, I hope, integrity. So if I don't have that, I may throw my hat at the whole thing. So I wouldn't be interested in playing to the crowd um, in order to get a few extra votes. And, and that's being honest with you. No, no, I'm not um, disputing that, and, but I, we know I, it's not the case, though, as I was saying to Nick. I mean, other councillors are different. Yeah, mm. and, and look, that's up to them and their conscience mm. and their voters. And I think voters can, can read read people as well and read, read councillors about, you know, whether they're making these decisions for the, the mm. best reasons or not. Maybe Damien English should be meeting with both of you and other councillors in Meath. But what we would welcome that. I'm sure Nick would welcome that as well. And Nick will take his blue in the face and invite okay. um, Damien I, I, in. I, I've, 30, I've, 30, I've 30 seconds left. Nick Killian, final word. Let's 
the local authorities deal with the housing crisis, take it out of the Department of the Environment and we'll solve not just the housing crisis for the traveller community, we'll, we'll sort it out for the county itself. Give okay. us the power and we'll deliver. Thank you both indeed to, uh, for joining us this morning. Independent Nick Killian and Sinn Féin Councillor Sinead Burke brings our programme to its conclusion. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie